Reclaim Your Brain podcast. I'm Dr. Liz Rook. I'm a certified life coach and rheumatologist, and I'm here to show you how I combine science, coaching, and psychology to solve stress and worry for me. And now I want to show you how you can do the same to enjoy the life you've worked so hard to create. It's time to stop struggling and have more fun. Let's do this. All right, everybody. I am very excited today to have Dr. Elisa Jung on the podcast with us. We're going to be talking about money mindset and burnout with healthcare professionals. And Dr. Jung or Elisa um, has been coaching for over a year and has a multitude of experience. And I'm excited for you guys to get her um, knowledge and wisdom today. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself, kind of give an introduction, and then we'll kind of get into it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm so honored to be your first guest on your podcast. Uh, So I am an ophthalmologist and oculoplastic surgeon, um, as well as a a life coach. So I certified at the life coach school. You know, I started my coaching journey actually partially due to the pandemic, but, you know, I had experienced burnout at the hospital I was at even before the pandemic. And the pandemic actually was a gift in many ways to me because it gave me time. You know, our hospital shut down. So there was a, a portion of time where I wasn't doing surgery and I was only seeing patients in clinic one to two days. And those days were really light because we were only seeing like very urgent patients. And so a whole online community of physicians, either I didn't know it was there or it came to be because of the pandemic, but you know, I just got connected with so many other people, um, which I had not been so connected with other physicians uh, before, you know, in ophthalmology, our residency programs are relatively small. We have four a year where I did my residency at Northwestern and then fellowship is even smaller. So there were very few kind of other physicians that I was really close knit with. And, you know, just interacting with a lot more physicians really realizing just how prevalent burnout was and having that solidarity and then finding coaching and finding that that is a really great way to get yourself out of burnout. So that's what I did. I got a burnout from coaching and I love the coaching so much that, you know, I decided to to become a coach. Yeah. So it sounds like you're really inspired by how much help, help that was for you personally. Um, I do agree that like having other professionals around you and knowing that you're not alone is so important when we're feeling, especially with burnout, you feel isolated and that contributes to the stress and kind of that disconnection. Um, And the pandemic, I think, was very stressful for all of us um, in healthcare and even outside of healthcare. I think in general, I I have a lot of teachers that I know (laughs) that were very and continue to be very stressed with all the changes that the pandemic has brought. Have you seen in any changes as the pandemic kind of continues to evolve um, as far as burnout in yourself or in your colleagues? It's funny that you mentioned teachers because my husband is a high school teacher. <laughs> so we're kind of both in the, the um, thick of it together. Um, and mm-hmm. I do think that even now, you know, there are some people I think who feel like the pandemic is essentially over. You know, a lot of restrictions have been lifted, but we do still ask patients to wear masks in clinic. and. In ophthalmology, you know, we're very close to our patients when we examine them. We're really like a foot and probably even less apart and breathing kind of the same airspace. 
but a lot of patients will actually not want to wear the mask anymore. And we use lenses in order to uh, look at the back of the eye and it, the mask does cause fogging of the lenses. So sometimes we do just ask them to take off their mask and, you know, we're still, I'm still wearing my own mask. Um, but, you know, in a, you know, I've been vaccinated. I was really uh, felt very lucky to be in the very first wave of people to get vaccinated um, and have so far been lucky to be COVID free. Um, but I still think it, you know, is a concern. It is good that it seems like, you know, once you get COVID, it's if you're vaccinated, it is mild. And I think I think we're going to have to learn with living with COVID as being just part of our, our world now, just like the flu is part of our world. And um, and getting vaccinated every year and, you know, the potential for illness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For a lot of healthcare professionals with the COVID pandemic, um, there were restrictions in work hours. There were sometimes like cuts and suspensions to pay. I had a couple of colleagues that were kind of furloughed um, and their salary was either paused or cut off. And that created a lot of stress as well. Can you speak a little bit to that? Yes, I, I had a friend who is a retina specialist. And so in retina, they do injections for wet macular degeneration. So it is an issue of blindness. So she was still actively seeing a lot of patients and having clinic. And yet she went without a paycheck for a while. Um, at my hospital, you had to take your, um, you know, pay time off your sick leave first, and then um, your vacation days during the, the time where, you know, we we're basically, you know, in shutdown mode. So it, you know, definitely affected the financial position of physicians. And I think a lot of us go into medicine with the idea that it is a secure income, but we found out just how unsecure our income actually is with the pandemic. Um, and unfortunately, you know, even though a lot of physicians do make really good income, especially when you compare it to the overall American population, we also have a large amount of debt that typically goes with that income from our student loans and debt burden. And then there's a certain amount of lifestyle creep, right? You earn this income, you think we did years and years of training, and there's a thought that we deserve this, you know, better life after we get out of it. And I'm not saying we don't deserve a better life, but everyone deserves a great life, right? No matter what your income is. But in order to have that great life, sometimes we have to separate what a great life is from how much things cost, you know, just because, um, you know, you theoretically can afford the payments on something doesn't mean that you can necessarily afford that something actually like, you know, a really fancy a car or, you know, really, you know, big house, like me want to really think about like, you know, what are your values when you're looking at those expenses to try to make sure you have more buffer room? I think you make a very good point. And I want to speak to a couple of the points you made, because I do think that the pandemic was very eye-opening for a lot of us in healthcare, because I know for myself, I decided, I think in middle school, I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer, so I would be financially stable and I never have to quote unquote worry or stress about money. Um, and I knew taking on a lot of debt was part of the deal. And I think there is a misperception that doctors have were rich, quote unquote, and that people don't realize much like teachers that there's a lot of debt and time that we pay to acquire this position. And we expect, and we have a certain level of expectation with financial stability because most of us are paying a, like a second mortgage essentially for our student loans. And I know that, you know, there are different approaches to debt and mine was kind of slow and steady wins the race. I knew I would have this extra payment for a certain amount of time, but the perception um, that 
we are, you know, we're wealthy and we have all this disposable income. And then there's also that expectation almost that we put on ourselves, like, well, we have to live the doctor lifestyle. And if we don't, you know, if we have a house and there's a pastor who lives next door, you know, we're comparing ourselves to other professions that may or may not be giving a lot of time and energy to the training and the development. And we're coming out 10 years behind a lot of our peers who have had time to accumulate some of that wealth and some of that retirement um, income already. And then, so there's almost that struggle to keep up. And then the pandemic for me, I lost all of my vacation time. I was told I can't take any time off where it would, that, I think that's interesting in, in contrast to what you were saying about having to take PTO to preserve kind of that, um, <clears throat> income, I was told your vacation's gone, your conference time is gone. I think I had three weeks at the start of the pandemic and we were on backup call for the hospital as internists. Um, my background as a rheumatologist, I hadn't been in the hospital for 10 years. <laughs> so I had that additional stress of, oh my gosh, I have to beef up on my training. And if I'm expected to take, take care of inpatients who are potentially very sick, this is kind of out of my comfort zone. So that is that additional stress plus the stress of not having the time off that I had planned. Um, and then also that financial question, because I heard about another local rheumatologist who was furloughed and I did, you know, we were told, well, you're lucky because you're not being taken off work. <laughs> and I think that all of that contributed to the stress of the pandemic and the burnout rate in a lot of us. So as far as your approach to money mindset with your clients, how do you start to open up that conversation and kind of dive in? Well, I try to meet my clients where they're at. And so uh, it really starts with looking at where they are now, where they want to be, you know, what their why is, you know, and, you know, how strong their why is, because that is also going to depend on, you know, what they're um, willing to do to kind of get there. But also, uh, and when I say get there, I mean financial independence, but also understanding that getting to financial independence isn't going to be instant happiness. You know, that's kind of uh, what that's an, a pure arrival fallacy. Like, you know, and as physicians, we have a lot of arrival fallacy. We think when we're a med student, it's going to be better when we're a resident. When it's when we're residents, it'll be better when we're a fellow. When we're a fellow, we think it'll be better as attendings. And, you know, the truth is, in some ways, it's better, but in some ways, it's, quote, worse, right? Like, life is just 50-50, and you kind of just have a new standard of life when you get to those new um, you know, eras of your life. And so when you get to the era of financial independence, you know, it, it hopefully will be in some ways better, but you're still going to have, uh, you're still going to have the 50-50 where it's not quote better, right? And no one is happy 100% of the time. And honestly, you don't want to be happy 100% of the time. If something really bad happens, um, and I guess, you know, your thought about bad happens, like if your mother dies, you don't want to be happy. You want to be sad about that. You want to feel grief. That's like a very normal emotion. Uh, to, to have when a loved one dies, right? Mm -hmm. And so no amount of like financial independence is going to, you know, help you through like some, some experience like that, um, except maybe you could take more time off work. So, I mean, there are some benefits, um, but what I'm just trying to say is like, you want to enjoy your current journey. You don't want to just like put your nose down to the grindstone and be like, okay, I'm now just going to work as fast as I can so that I can quit medicine. Yeah. Do you think a lot of people come to you with that idea of when, you know, when, if like the grass is greener and they want to reach that financial independence faster so that they can be happy and then they can release all that stress that they're holding on to about 
having to, you know, work, having to work a certain amount, feeling kind of encumbered by, I don't have the freedom to go travel or do what I want because, you know, I sold my soul to medicine (laughs) in training and I didn't, because I feel like there's a, almost a lack of understanding or education in a lot of medical students. They, you know, I, I feel like I did a fair amount of research and I understood, you know, I'm going to be paying loans off till I'm 65 if I go that traditional route, but you don't really, obviously you can't really understand until you go through it, but that some medical students kind of go in with this rosy vision of, oh, it's not a problem because I'll be making enough money that it won't be a big deal. Um, but then kind of the reality is a little bit different. And then in training, when we're making basically minimum wage and working a lot of hours um, and how that kind of affects us as we mature, as we start our families, as we realize there are other things to life other than money. (laughs) So honestly, I see um, the full range. I see physicians who actually really do like practicing medicine, but would just like to, um, you know, go part-time practice a little less, have a little bit more time for their family or vacations or self-care. You know, I see some physicians who just kind of want a little bit more money to take more vacation or to buy things that, you know, they aren't buying because, you know, of the money, uh, you know, if they just had more money. Um, you know, I also see physicians who want to try to get to financial independence as soon as possible and, you know, really want to know, like, you know, how fast can it be done and what do I have to do in order to get there? So, you know, it does definitely run the whole gambit. Uh, You know, there are some physicians who really want to just leave medicine and there are some physicians who, you know, still really enjoy the practice of medicine, but just want to slow down a bit, just don't want it to feel like it's overtaking their entire life. Yeah. What do you think the common thread is amidst all the diversity that you see as far as finances and, you know, stress and resilience and emotional health in the clients that you talk to? I'm not sure because like I said, I see people from all over the place. I do think, um, you know, I've, I've also talked to some physicians who wonder if it's even possible to get to financial independence. And my thoughts of that is like, well, eventually you think you're going to stop working. Right. (laughs) But I do think that there are people who probably, and I'm just completely guessing here. There are probably Mm -hmm. some people who really went into medicine because of that you know, service and want to help for people and found a specialty they really enjoy Mm -hmm. and uh, have overall more frugal uh, leanings. Mm -hmm. And those people are probably more likely that people just want to cut back a little bit. And then there are people who kind of, you know, did go to medicine for maybe their parents really pushed them into medicine, uh, pushed them into, uh, I mean, so I'm of uh, Chinese American descent. My parents were both born in China, raised in Taiwan, and came to the United States when they were uh, relatively young. My dad at 16, my mother at 21. Um, and my father actually was like, you should go into business. That's where real money is. And I think he's right. But my mother was like, no, you should go into medicine. Like That's the safe, secure um, career that you'll make really good money and just have a really good life. And you know, from an uh, Asian standpoint, I think... Uh, she's much more kind of traditional in that sense. And so if you kind of enter medicine with the family pressure, with the idea that this is just going to be a stable, good financial life, and then you find like, wow, I'm really, really working super hard. It's not financially as rewarding as I thought it would be. Um, and I don't have you know the time for my children, or I don't have time for the vacation that I'd like to have. 
then I think those people are probably more likely to want to get out. Um, you know, also there might be some life circumstances sprinkled into that. People who've had maybe a little bit more tragedy in their life uh, and medicine wasn't kind to them getting through that tragedy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It sounds like to me, based on what you've been saying, that balance, I think maybe the biggest common thread is that people have to find what works best for them based on their values. Does that, would you yes, agree I, with I that? definitely, I definitely think balance is key. And also, I mean, there is a lot of money mindset um, issues. So the, the difference that of compensation between people within a specialty is actually much larger than the average compensation difference between specialties. So like in ophthalmology, there are ophthalmologists who make under $200,000 a year who are generally salaried physicians. And then there are ophthalmologists making like a million dollars a year. And these are people who typically are in private practice or partners in their private practice, or, you know, they own their private practice and they're running a business. And so this is where I really think my dad was right. You know, it's that business aspect of running in a really efficient business that is actually what is uh, ables them to bring in all that income. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the people making more money, like, is there a direct correlation between money and happiness or money and stress? I think I already know the answer, but I'm curious. There are lots of billionaires <laughs> we know that are unhappy. So no amount of money buys you happiness. It's really, you know, it's your thoughts about your life and thoughts about money that um, never buy happiness. Now, you know, lack of money can potentially cause, you know, more uh, stress and more difficulties and decrease happiness. But there are actually uh, several studies that have been done to show that once you get to a certain threshold of income, that increased income doesn't actually bring any more happiness. And I think that that income threshold is surprisingly low from what it I does. remember. I mean, there are um, different studies. And so the most recent North American study, oh gosh, um, I haven't looked at it for a little while, but so yeah, so there there are, have been multiple studies. Um, there was one study where it was like around uh, seventy eight or seventy nine thousand, where uh, above be that that didn't bring any additional happiness. There was one really comprehensive study that was done um, that actually looked at you know all the different regions around the world, and so there was a little bit of equation in that, and I can't remember the exact uh, numbers, but it's something where pretty much all of us physicians make above that level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that kind of almost a fallacy that a lot of people have is that the more money you have, the happier you're going to be. But, you know, I kind of subscribe to more money, more problems. Like if you have problems at a lower income level and you strive to this higher income level, those problems aren't going to change, right? Because we know it's more based on our mindset and our beliefs. Um, so really addressing that, I think, can make a big difference as far as stress level and income level. Um, what do you think is the most surprising thing that you've noticed that like people are doing well, but they don't think they are as far as money and financial income. So I coach in, in a few different programs. And so mm -hmm. some people will come to me and basically come with the question of how am I doing? And so we talk about their current situation and a lot of those people are actually doing really well. They tend to be people who don't necessarily track all their expenses, but are saving you know, upwards of 30, 40, even 50% of their income, they really uh, live a fairly frugal lifestyle for the amount of income they're bringing in. And again, like I said, physician salaries really run all over the place from 
you know, like I said, um, probably low end would be $175,000, $175, a year to up end a million dollars a year. And I have had clients that expand that whole range. And so if you're making $175,000 a year, it's going to be a lot harder to save 52% of your income than if you're making a million dollars a year. Uh, yeah. But people who are saving a significant um, a percentage of their income and you know maxing out all their uh, tax advantage accounts and still putting aside more money to invest are typically really doing well. I think what I find is that some of those people are really not sure what to do with the money that they're saving that after they've maxed out all their tax uh, deferred accounts or uh, and you know we as physicians, typically will need to invest outside of just tax deferred accounts. So if you think about it, if you're making, um, I'm just going to choose for easy number, $500,000. Let's say you're a dual physician household. Both of you make $250,000. That's you know, not uncommon. That means if, they, if you're going to try to save 20% of your gross income, that you really need to be saving $100,000 a year. But if you think about how much you can put into 401ks, that maxes out uh, in 2022 at 20,500. And if you're over the age of uh, 50, then you can put another 6,500. Uh, but even with two people putting in the max, you're still only at half of that 20%. So your 401k or 403b would still only be 10% of your gross income. So that really means that for your retirement savings, because in general, 20% uh, is the recommended to really be in a good place for retirement. I mean, if you start really early, you can do 10 or 15, um, but we as physicians typically start much later. So that means that you're wanting to invest another $100,000 in outside accounts. And you know you can invest them in stocks uh, uh, or you know, mutual funds in you know, brokerages like Vanguard or Fidelity, but you, know, you can also use that money to invest in uh, real estate or private equity, or there's a lot of actually other investments that are open uh, to uh, you know high income couples or high income individuals um, that actually are qualified for what's called an accredited investor. Okay. Do you find that you talk more about strategy or more about mindset when you're coaching? I think it's a mix of both. Um, mm -hmm. So it depends on where the person's at. Usually when I'm talking about strategy, it's answering questions and doing some kind of education, but really what it comes down to is about mindset. So people who are generally in that group of where they're pretty frugal and they're saving a lot of money, sometimes the mindset is actually like, I can't spend money, like really having still a very scarcity feeling around money. And mm -hmm. so I've definitely coached on, well, you know, just because you want to save doesn't mean that you can't spend on your values and really just looking at like, you know, what really brings you joy when you spend money on it? You know, if, if you really love cars, maybe it's fine that you splurge on an expensive car, but if cars aren't your thing, then maybe, you know, like I drive a Honda Civic. I want a car that is reliable, that gets me from point A to point B. You know, I did test drive like Audis and Mercedes Benz uh, when I got to that attending level and I thought, well, you know, let's, let's look at a nice car. And I just couldn't justify those high monthly payments. I was like, this isn't, it's a little nicer, but it's not a lot nicer. It's, it's not going to change, 
you know, anything about my life. And then I'm just going to get used to having this level of car and not want to like go back down. So I think that's part of it too, is just, you can incrementally increase your lifestyle living instead of like when you become an attending, really just jumping up straight from, you know, living as a resident to living as an attending, um, you know, but there are some things that, you know, really probably bring you a lot of joy. And that might be like spending the money to go visit your parents more regularly and that travel time. And while that may seem like, well, it's thousands of dollars to like buy plane tickets for me and the entire family, take that time off. But that time that you have with your parents may really just be worth spending that money. So you had mentioned, you know, cars, you know, houses, entitlement. Do you think that there's a certain level of belief that maybe most physicians have? And you said like, there's, there's multiple camps. There's like the frugal camp where they're maybe not enjoying life enough. And then there's people who are like, heck yeah, I need to have the house and the car and, and everything to, you know, kind of live the lifestyle. Um, do you think that there's more tendency towards entitlement, especially coming out of residency as you have that jump in income? Or do you think that people tend to be more frugal? I feel like a lot of physicians are very black and white. Um, so it's like either or, not either and. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, I've definitely seen a lot of physicians who kind of live both ends of the spectrum. Uh, I do think more physicians, when they're looking at how much they have to pay towards their debt, uh, do kind of stick a little bit more to the frugal end. But I do think the number one, uh, I don't want to say downfall, but I can't think of necessarily a better word, is buying a house straight out of training at your first job. Because a lot of people leave their first job and when buying a house is easy, right? Especially with physician loans. You can do it with no money down or very little money down and you don't have to pay you know, much in like the realtor fees are paid by the seller and you know you can even get closing costs covered by the seller but when you sell a house then you have to pay your realtor their realtor and you're paying all your closing costs and maybe some of the person who's buying your house closing costs so if you take a job and you know within a year or two you're like oh this is not what i thought it was going to be i don't want to stay here. And unfortunately, we also have non-competes very often with our jobs. So it may mean moving to go to the next opportunity. And now you've got a house where like in one year, you've unlikely developed equity. I mean, recently the housing market has been hot, so you may actually be okay. But in general, that is not mm -hmm. the case where uh, now you're looking at you know selling your home and having all these expenses sell. So even if you sold it for the same price that you bought it for, or even above the price you bought it for, all the costs involved leading you to actually need to bring money to the closing table. And then if you plan on buying a house to where you go, you kind of kind of repeat this cycle. So what I really recommend is renting when you first start as an attending until you know that you really love the job, the, the area, and you get to know the area. If you're moving to a place that you've never lived before, you may not really realize what neighborhood you want to be in. You may be at the point where you don't have kids yet and you're not thinking about the school system. So go ahead and rent for a year, really figure out the job situation, really figure out where you want to live. And then when you're pretty sure you're going to stay at a place for the long haul, then that's the time to buy. Okay. Yeah, I think that's pretty solid advice is like, don't, don't necessarily jump in blind, you know, or feel like you have to um, buy a house or, you know, upgrade your car or, you know do all the things that I think there's a lot of perception maybe with the money mindset and 
especially with physician salaries, but any high paying job, um, especially, I guess the transition from college to first job would be similar for a lot of different vocations. Um, but just feeling like, okay, I'm here, I made it, you know, it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. So now I can start accumulating things. But I think you speak well to about really knowing what your values are. And I think as physicians, we have that time in, in school and training. So sometimes we can develop who we are and what our values are, because most of us are coming out in our late 20s, early 30s. And starting our careers, whereas a lot of other like teachers and other um, like undergraduate or master's degrees are coming out in their early 20s, mid 20s. And I don't know, for me, like, I didn't really find myself until my mid 30s. <laughs> and even I'm continuing to evolve to know what is that I truly value and what I truly want. Because I think you speak well to like, I've had nicer cars, and I drive a RAV4 now because it brings me joy to be able to drive in the snow safely. <laughs> versus, you know, a Lexus that goes real fast. And I think that's an important point is people have to kind of know themselves and know what they want and what's important to them versus like what other people may think about them. Because I think that that coming from having trained in California, there's a lot of like perception versus reality of like, you think this person has money because they're driving the nice car or they live in the nice area, but they're really scrambling to get by and they're not really looking towards the future. They're just living in the moment. And then there's the other people that are very, very frugal living just in the future and not living at all in the moment or enjoying their life. And that's where my husband and I have really balanced each other out because I'm, I'm very much a saver. He's very much a, well, we may not, you know, people make it to retirement and then drop dead sometimes. <laughs> so got to live a little now. So it sounds like you do a fair amount of that discussion with your clients as well, which I think is helpful because we unknowingly put ourselves under stress with money in our perceptions, what we're brought up with, you know, what's considered reasonable, what's considered not. And then we're fighting against cultural beliefs, societal beliefs of, well, you should be doing this, or it should look like this. Can you speak a little more to kind of your experience either personally or, you know, with coaching about people's perceptions, like they should be doing this or they should be doing that as far as saving or spending? You know, what I find is that because we didn't have any kind of financial education anytime during our training, that people really just have no idea how much they should be saving for retirement or, you know, how much is okay to uh, quote be spending on just like what truly is disposable income. You yeah. know, a lot of people have no idea really what their expenses are in terms of how much they're spending and really have no idea what their savings rate is. They just know that, you know, they're able to pay their bills mm -hmm. and, you know, they really don't even know what margin they're at. And, and this includes people who are frugal and this includes people who are spenders. Okay. As, as far as like stress, not necessarily burnout, because I, I speak a lot more about stress in professional and personal life and relationships. And something that I feel is very important is gratitude. And can you speak a little bit to the, you, you touched on it earlier about scarcity with a money mindset versus I guess abundance or sufficiency with a money mindset. I find that having gratitude for the money we have and the bills that we're able to pay and even just how we approach 
you know, a lot of people don't like paying bills or they put it off or, you know, or they're like, okay, I just got to get it done. And it's just another check thing on the list, but not being intentional about how, how far their money goes or how they're spending or how they're saving. Cause you, like you said, there's not necessarily a lot of awareness a lot of times. And I think that contributes to stress because we have this perception of I should be doing more or I should be saving more, or I feel like I'm just scraping along, even though I'm making all this money. Do you, do you coach with your clients or how do you approach that with your clients as far as building sufficiency or building abundance with their money versus having this scarcity mindset of I have to, you know, kind of accumulate. Does that make sense? Yeah. So actually, I love how you brought up paying bills. So a lot of times, you know, we all have utility bills, right? And it's just another bill you have to pay. And that is typically the mindset. But when you think about it, how great is it that we have running water, we have piped in water that we can drink and, you know, have sanitation and waste disposal such that like, like it's just easy, right? I mean, in Africa, there are places where women literally have to walk like, you know, kilometers or a mile in order to get to a well to get a bucket of water to bring it back. And we can just turn on that water for you know, a pretty low price. And it just comes out of tap and we can drink it and we can bathe. And, uh, and if, for example, like, let's just say that the water company just decided that they, they weren't going to give you water anymore. You weren't going to get water service. You would be like, no, let me pay for it. I want to pay for water. Like, please just let me pay for the service. There's no way I want to not have running water. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing for electricity. Like, you know, can you imagine like if your uh, electric company was like, yep, we're not doing service to you. Or, you know, I mean, this really happens right after hurricanes, lines come down, people don't have electricity for a while. And like what a essentially burden that becomes such that you, you're like, no, I, I, I would pay double for the electricity just to have it. And that can really just bring a, a little bit of gratitude on like, yes, I want to be paying this water bill. I want to be paying this electric bill because I am so grateful to have the light come on by just flipping a switch to, you know, have water coming out of my faucet that I can just drink right out of my faucet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I noticed a big shift because I've done a lot of money work myself um, with coaching. And I think that just being able to sit down and pay the bills and be grateful that there's money in my account to pay the bills and there's money left over and I'm saving for retirement. And we have all of these things in our house. Like you can see my gnomes on the shelf here. Like I have money to spend on gnomes because they bring me joy, you know, (laughs) but also using our money in a way that it enhances our life versus causing us more stress, I think is an important point that we take for granted. You know, we take, like you said, like electricity and running water, like first world problems, right? Like I can't have the newest edition of the Tesla because I have to finish paying this other thing off. It's like, really? (laughs) But then it's easy to beat ourselves up about that too, which creates more stress on top. But I think really just knowing yourself, knowing what your important values are. Like my husband's a car person and he constantly is like, you, do you even care what you're driving? I'm like, no, as long as it's reliable, I'm kind of in that camp with you. Like if it's reliable, it gets me from place to place safely. I'm good. I just don't want it to break down in the middle of the road. That's, you know, The money is meant to flow too, right? It's not meant to be stagnant. Like if you hoard money, like money doesn't necessarily want to come to you. Like, you know, that's the the flow of the world is like you, you put out value in the world, you get, uh, you know, money, then you pay other people for their value and it keeps flowing. 
Oh, I love that. Yeah, I've heard that from other people too, but I think we, we lose sight of that easily because we feel like it's a game of like, and I don't think as physicians, we see that like we're providing a service and value to you know our employer or our patients and we're getting money in exchange for that. And then we're paying out the money and what's, you know, what's valuable to us, what's important to us. But I like the way that you describe that as a flow. I think that's really important. Um, do you find that that decreases people's stress around money when they start to shift that perception? Yeah, I, I think it is just all in that mindset of like, okay, like, yes, there are things where I've been, you know, just holding back on the spending and therefore like it is causing you know, some kind of distress and just by, you know, letting go and maybe, you know, going ahead and buy something that I've been thinking about for months or years, which really is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not actually that much money Then, you know, releasing that and just being able to feel joy every time they see whatever it is that they've been kind of denying themselves, right? Because when we deny ourselves, then that's a whole different feeling of, you know, essentially stress that doesn't necessarily need to be there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you say to people who are, I mean, being a money coach, people come to you and then coaching is not cheap, right? For most of us, it's not a huge investment for those of us in medicine, but for other people who may be considering investing in themselves, growing themselves, it is an investment and sometimes a significant one. What do you say to people who are kind of questioning whether or not it's quote unquote worth it? what price do you put on your happiness, right? And mm. how much would you pay to invest in yourself to be in a much better place to feel confident around your ability to manage money, to feel confident that you're going to get to financial independence, you know, in the future. And, you know, maybe it's a little longer than you thought to get there, but that you can be happy the entire way working your way to that point. And it's not necessarily going to be a whole lot better when you're there, it's just going to be different and you can recreate whatever life it is when you get there, but you can also start creating your ideal life now and making every day closer to that. So, you know, and I've also found that, you know, through the coaching I've done with my clients that we found a lot of ways to save money, more money than the investment in coaching cost. And we've also, you know, talked about ways where the client can, you know, get more value, um, uh, where the client can put out more value, where that they can really actually be making more or realizing where they're putting out value, but essentially cashing in on that value by, you know, potentially like getting a raise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you deal with shame a lot around money? Cause I find that shame is like a secret thing that a lot of us ha have stress around and it hides behind, you know, money beliefs, like self-concept you know, that, that good enough or doing enough or having enough or what we should be doing. Do you find that there's a lot of shame that's kind of hiding around money beliefs with your clients? Or do you not see that a lot? And there is some shame. It's not prevalent in everyone, but you know, there are some people who feel like I should be better with money, but I really just hide whenever, you know, it comes to numbers. And there are a lot of women who just um, unfortunately, or, there are a lot of women uh, who are married who let their spouse just take care of the money and they really just have no idea of really what's going on with their personal finances. And so there can be a little bit of shame around that. Okay. So it sounds like you do a lot of empowering with your clients to kind of be informed so that you can make decisions based on, you know, their values and what is important to them as far as 
um, their happiness in terms of the value that they can get from the money they have and the money they spend. Do you say that? Yes. Yeah. And we work a lot on just what brought the person to their current money mindset. So our money mindset has been developing since we were kids, what we see our parents spend, what they said about money, what our friends in school said, what our teacher said. I mean, that's all been compounding, you know, throughout our lifetime. And it's, underlying such that we don't even realize necessarily how that influences us to, um, and how we think about money now. But when you can unravel some of that and realize like, well, just because this was the situation when I was young, I'm in a completely different situation now. And I don't need to hold on to the same beliefs as my parents did, or that I heard from others, or I don't need to compare myself to, you know, the people around me. Excellent. Excellent. So what kind of gem would you give my Reclaim Your Brain listeners as far as something that they can do to kind of increase their awareness and decrease their stress around their money mindset? What's one kind of take home point that you could give them today? I think the biggest thing is just really think about your values when you're spending money and spend money towards your values. Try not to live in a world of comparison or think, you know, the I shoulds, I should have, I should do the, the shoulds are usually not helpful, but you know, what do you spend money on that brings you joy and think about spending more money there. And when I say joy, I mean, lasting joy, not the like dopamine hit you get the moment that you make that purchase, but how do you feel about that purchase a month later, a year later, if it's, is it something you still absolutely love or is something you kind of wish you didn't buy? Great. Well, thank you so much, Elisa, for coming on today and sharing your wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Is there, how can, how can listeners contact you if they want to get more information about working with you or any programs that you have coming up? Yes. So the best way to find me is at my website, growyourwealthymindset.com. You know, if you go to that website, you can find all my social media links. Um, But I do typically do a free uh, group coaching session, uh, usually about once a month. So you can find out about the next session at the website. I also do informational masterclasses or webinars, and you can find more information at my website about any of those that are upcoming as well. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. This was fantastic. Thank you for being my first guest. I think I might've been more nervous than you, but we pulled it off. So yay us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so honored to be your first guest. All right, Reclaim Your Brain listeners, that is what we have for you today. You have some great take-home points on how to decrease your stress by enhancing your money mindset. I think the biggest take-home that I heard today is to spend money towards your values and bring more joy and gratitude into your money mindset, and this will take you far. Thank you so much for joining us today. And don't forget to leave a review and share with your friends. The contact information for Elisa Jang is in the show notes, along with your guide to start slashing your stress today. All right, y'all, we will talk to you next week. Have a fantastic week. Thank you for listening today. If you love what you're hearing, be sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you want more inspiration and stress solutions to feel better and live joyfully, click the link in the show notes to join my email list to get joy delivered straight to your inbox. It is never too late to reclaim your brain and thrive in your life.